Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, packed early pod for the people today. We've got two SEC player interviews this week. I caught up with the new star at Kentucky, Wandell Robinson. Um, if you don't know that name, you are going to know it very, very soon. Uh, kid is awesome. And then uh, Ole Miss linebacker Momo Sonogo also joined me. So we've got both SEC West, SEC East represented today. Two awesome kids. I, I've always just heard such great things about, so I was glad we were able to kind of line that up and figure, you know what, we'll give it to, to the people same week, same week. Pretty different conversations, too, that we were able to that we were able to have, but I think people get a lot out of those. Love being able to talk with Wandell about his usage, kind of where he thrives, because as I wrote after he transferred from Nebraska this offseason, I think he could be the most impactful non-transfer quarterback in all of college football this year. Not blowing smoke when I say that he think he when I when I say that I think he can be that good. And then with Momo, someone who um, I've been wanting to talk to for a while, not just because he's been through a lot at Ole Miss, which you kind of realize you're like, oh man, he's been there five five years now goodness that's at Ole Miss that's like dog years that's that's a long time with what they've been through um but just you know he's been through a lot also with the way that he's represented that team off the field especially last year so really really fun to be able to dig dig deep a bit with him and then I was originally going to do something SEC wide for all the spring games this past weekend but I'm actually going to save that for next week when they're all wrapped up we can go heavy heavy into that in lieu of that, I have a lot of thoughts about Kirby in George's quarterback room after what we saw on Saturday. And then we have a bachelor slash bachelorette party edition of figuring it out because as I'll explain later, I got a whole lot of unique experience in that department this past weekend. But before we get to all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the College Football Uncensored Podcast. Yes, you've heard me talk about it before. It's Saturday Down South's newest podcast. It's Marler. It's Tyler Huck. They talk about everything college football and then some, whether you want some spring game takes, debates about the most hated athletes in sports, or you just want to hear a couple of guys chopping it up about whatever comes up. You'll love College Football Uncensored Podcast. During the offseason, it's one episode a week, dropping every Monday morning. And hey, if you hate that bleep button, you're in luck. No bleep button needed. Actual curse words. They've got a lot of fun stuff planned coming up real soon here. So if you haven't yet, go to wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to the College Football Uncensored Podcast. Go do that right now. I'm going to say something that might come back to bite me. Oh, boy. And it's some, I know, I know. Whenever, whenever I talk about a lead, goodness gracious, set myself up for <laughs> failure there. It's something that I've wanted to say, and or I wanted to, to hold off on saying this until we saw Carson Beck in Georgia's spring game. And I've got a bit more thoughts on Carson Beck later, so I promise I'll get to all that. But what, what's the thing that might come back to bite me? I don't know how Kirby Smart can mess up this quarterback room. I know. I know. Right? <laughs> Well, let me show you several other quarterback rooms that you'd be shocked. <laughs> trust me. Trust me. We'll get there. We'll get there. Everyone, you included, Will, just set into their phone, their car, their computer, their tablet, or whatever they're listening to this on, buddy, he'll find a way. <laughs> After all, that's what Kirby Smart is known for. He botched it back in 2018. I still say there's a little bit too much revisionist history with Fields versus Fromm. The mistake wasn't not starting Fields. I've said a million times the turning point was the Florida game. Fromm was able to respond after the LSU loss, and that little window in which we could have seen Fromm replaced closed. 
Fromm wasn't Stetson Bennett as a true freshman in 2017. He was the number five quarterback in America in terms of quarterback rating, and then he was lights out down the stretch as a sophomore in 2018, which is when that window sort of closed. Kirby's mistake with Fields was his usage. They should have let him air it out way, way more. Who cares if teams were running up the score? He should have realized that was important. Why should he have realized it? The second that post-game clip against South Carolina went viral, that's when you step in and change his usage. In case you forgot, oh, well, you're going to be excited by this. Week 2, 2018, it's after Georgia just destroyed South Carolina in Columbia. There was a little bit of that buzz, like South Carolina, oh, maybe going to be a top 25 team. That's going to be a great atmosphere. Can't wait for that one. Week 2, they've got the revamped offense. No, 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 no. Georgia won that game 41-17. to They were up 41-10 to going into the fourth quarter. And Fields played plenty in that game. He played the entire fourth quarter. He came in with like two minutes left in the third quarter. I went back and looked it up. Fields is walking off with Eric Stokes and Zach Klein, who does local TV in Atlanta. Will, uh, get ready to bleep this one because Zach Klein caught Fields as he's walking off saying, I handed the ball off good as f I didn't do <laughs> bro. That is the most relatable sports court I've ever heard. It's like, all right, yeah, what do you want me to do? Sure, I handed it off. <laughs> Kirby, I mean, you can't tell me that Kirby didn't see that. Yet, before, so going into the SEC Championship, Justin Fields threw a total, a total of 14 passes against Power 5 competition. 14 passes, and those, that UGA team killed people. Yet, that's how many passes he threw. He's right, handling the ball off really well. Then, of course, the fake punt happens in the SEC Championship. He's a sitting duck. We've been through this a million times. Fields is like, what, am, what in the world am I doing here? That's how Kirby messed that situation up, obviously. That's a pretty simple thing to figure out, though. And if we were trying to figure out how this would, would work and how it could potentially fall apart going into that 2018 season, yeah, the path was pretty obvious. Fields is the number two overall recruit in America. Comes into Georgia. If he doesn't play, you know what? Probably going to leave. Not really that tricky, but... Hey, you know, this this whole thing with Fields was considered like, yeah, this big screw for Kirby. It, and it was, but it was pretty obvious here. And it's a much, much different situation than now. Jake Fromm was a good college quarterback. All right, well, I know you got takes on that. I know you got takes on that because there's there's a lot of disagreement. Not even the Jake Fromm thing. Let me just let me just drill you for two seconds here. This is reckless speculation. You don't feel feel need to feel the need to comment on this. Do you think that the work ethic concerns for Justin Fields could have been coming from Georgia? Because they're, we've seen they're not coming from Ohio oh, like State. With the, with the draft stuff. Yes. With the draft stuff. Because it seems like there's a group of people who would like for you to believe that Justin Fields isn't a hard worker, and they're not at Ohio State. No, I think, I think that relationship's actually pretty good. Uh, Georgia has closed practices, and Fields has been able to go to Georgia's practices. Okay. He still has a ton of buddies on the team. I, I'd be surprised if that was a, a Georgia-fueled narrative. I, I don't think that's the case. But you never know. You have to ask these types of questions because somebody is polarizing his feels. Yeah, that's, that's something that we, we would probably wonder about. Let me take my tinfoil hat off now. My bad. I'll let you get back on track. <laughs> No, you're good. You're good. These are the types of things that you need to be able to point out to me because sometimes I'll just zip right through them and I'll bypass them. <laughs> Jake Fromm was a good college quarterback. Was he great? No. 
Was he put in an absolutely brutal spot in 2019? Yes. Dated offense, zero experience at receiver after the Jeremiah Holloman stuff happened. Those two things, yeah, they're on Kirby. They should have had a better offense. They should have had a modern offense. They should have been able to figure out more ways to get people at receiver so that it's not just Lawrence Cage or transferring in from Miami. I give Kirby a little bit, a little bit of a pass for screwing up what happened last year in 2020. The JT Daniels thing, yeah, it was weird. It's a tough look that he played so well down the stretch, of course. But if he wasn't healthy, he wasn't healthy. And if his own dad is saying that he's not healthy, all right, agree who you want with that whole thing. The problem, though, of course, is that Kirby couldn't keep Jamie Newman from opting out. If that was Daniels-related, as some expected, and some kind of theorized after the fact, that's also weird because Kirby should have been able to just say to him, look, he's not ready to start this year. He's not healthy. You're our guy. Dewan Mathis was forced into the fire and clearly he wasn't ready. Would he have been better with a normal offseason? Probably. Does it matter though at a place like Georgia? Nope. We saw how all of that went. Stetson Bennett the fourth, he comes in, he shows some promise. It faded once there was an actual book on him. Teams realized that he couldn't really stretch the, the offense the way that they wanted to with Todd Munkin's offense. Then JT Daniels comes in, of course. Revisionist history, again, it says JT Daniels was ready. Daniels says that Daniels was ready, of course. He's gonna be the guy who says, yep, I was ready to go. We could have had this all year, whatever. That's water under the bridge because it led us to this point. This is Kirby Smart's best quarterback situation. It's his ideal quarterback situation. On Sunday night, I was sitting at the airport and I'm catching up on everything and I'll explain why I had to catch up on everything later. And I watched and read probably more spring game stuff than I ever have. Rarely, very rarely, Georgia fans know this all too well, rarely does Kirby actually say something meaningful or noteworthy about his quarterbacks. And that dates back actually to when he was willing to, well, not really. He wasn't willing to say this, that Jake Fromm was going to be the guy as soon as Jacob Beeson's healthy. Wasn't willing to do that, although everybody kind of saw it going in that direction. That, by the way, was a situation Kirby didn't mess up, and he was smart to do what he did, but I digress. After Georgia's spring game, I actually thought this was noteworthy coming from Kirby. This quote about his quarterback room came via Dog Nation. Kirby said, top to bottom, I certainly feel good about all four of them. Do not know that I could ever say that I had four I was confident about. These four I feel really good about. I think they are good football players. I think they're bright. I think they're intelligent. They challenge themselves, blah, blah, blah. It is hard to compare it to other years. We have certainly have had a talented quarterback room before, but with four guys you feel good about, it is hard to have that in college football. Yep. Kirby's right, and nobody knows that better than him. It's basically impossible to have a quarterback room that looks like this. I'm going to tell you why. If Kirby doesn't want to compare it, I will. I'm old enough to remember 2019, wherein he brought Stetson Bennett the fourth back from Juco so that he could back up Jake Fromm. In 2018, it's just Fields and Fromm. In 2017, it's Eason and Fromm. Kirby has been lucky to have two guys at times, and now the guy that he turned to fourth probably, Brock Vandegrift, he, Brock, Vandegr Brock Vandegrift is the five-star guy, but it's weird because I think if Daniels were to go down mid-game, Stetson Bennett would probably come in just to fill out the rest of the game because he's done that before. But if Daniels were to say, like, get injured in September, and Georgia fans, I'm not wishing this upon you. I know the injury bug has been brutal, but I'm not doing that to you. Like, if JT Daniels were to go down in September, who's the guy for the rest of the year? It's not Stetson Bennett. He can't maximize this offense. Carson Beck would get the call. 
I told you I've been sitting on this take until we saw Carson Beck in the spring game. Keep in mind, we haven't really been able to see Carson Beck. UGA didn't have a spring game last year, of course, so we didn't get to see him there. He played in the Mizzou game, but all he did was hand the ball off. If you ask me, he handed the ball off good as F, as Justin Fields would say. Um, and Georgia doesn't do open practices to the media. Like I said, sometimes select boosters and family, they'll get to see some stuff. And you actually have beat reporters like Mike Griffith, who we've had on this podcast before. He's got to like talk to sources to figure out what happened at practice. In other words, we hadn't really seen anything from Carson Beck. All we had heard about was his development, that he was continuing to progress. And he was looking really, really good. Kirby also said that he had an issue last year with like not going to class. He said that's figured out now. But basically, we didn't hear much about Carson Beck until Saturday. What did we see on Saturday? I saw a backup who was plenty capable of stepping in and playing in the SEC. I saw someone who looked calm, he looked settled, he looked poised, he's got the size at 6'4", and the footwork in the pocket was there, he's not skittish, and the arm strength is there to be able to execute this offense. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely. The interception that he threw, he somehow overthrew Arian Smith, which I didn't realize that was possible with his wheels. Jordan Rodgers had a great point of the broadcast where he said, safeties can recover in the SEC. Throwing a deep ball isn't just like, throw it up, go get it. You need to make sure that that ball in that situation where safety can come over the top and it's not on the sidelines in the middle of the field, you need to make sure that that ball is on a line. It makes it a true battle with the wide receiver in the corner. So Beck adjusts and he figured things out and he had this excellent drive to end the game. Kirby had them throwing deep into that game too. And I love that. Who cares if it's only two minutes left in a spring game or whatever. Get Daniels and Beck those reps. They're one-handed touch. If they're getting hurt there, they can get hurt on any given day. They need those reps and that's exactly what they got. Kirby didn't mess that up, so credit him for that. Daniels, by the way, looks ready for the big time. That throw he made to A.D. Mitchell, mercy. That was a freaking dart. Beats the safety over the top, perfect timing. That's a throw Jake Fromm cannot make. That deep ball that JT Daniels throws, it's pretty. I've been critical of the accuracy, which still needs improvement, but there was this play where JT Daniels rolls left. He's got perfect footwork, and he hits Kiaris Jackson, who was like on an eight yard out. And if Daniels' footwork is anything less than perfect, it's either picked and probably going the other way, or it's a really ugly completion that a lot of guys would not have looked very good on. Why do I bring this up? Because JT Daniels, even without George Pickens, is set up to thrive in this offense. It's inevitable that this will be UGA's first top 40 passing offense in the post-Aaron Murray era. Since Aaron Murray left Georgia, they haven't had a top 40 passing offense. How is that possible with all that talent? Jake because Brown. Kirby's messed it up. Well, man, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's right a now. little part of it. And I, I think I'd say that, I'd still say that I would think that Georgia would be a top 40 passing offense, even if JT Daniels were to get injured. I know. What Kirby has gotten to in terms of the situation, the situation he has walked into in 2021, it's somewhat unbelievable. It really is. Everyone in that room, for now at least, it appears to have, they, they have appeared to accept their roles in that hierarchy. Like, JT is the budding star. He's the leader of that team. He didn't hold last year's injury drama against Kirby. I had speculated about that. I was wrong about that. Carson Beck is the redshirt freshman who didn't throw a pass last year, but he clearly went to work and he looks ready. But beyond that is what I think is really fascinating. Stetson Bennett, he isn't getting nearly as many reps as, as Beck, 
and Vandegrift. Like, that's just not happening in practice. Kirby's basically come out and been like, no, these are the two guys. These are the potential future faces of our program. They need to be the ones getting in the reps. We've seen what Stetson Bennett can do. He doesn't need that. It's pretty clear that Betson's, Stetson Bennett's days as a starter, long gone. And I remember watching him get benched in that Florida game, and he's getting talked to on the sideline. He kind of had this look on his face of like, basically... I hit my ceiling, my 15 minutes of fame are over, it's been nice. Now though, his role is what I outlined before. He could have to come in and win a huge game this year. Like if JT Daniels rolls his ankle in the second quarter against Auburn and it's 14 to seven, Stetson Bennett probably gets the ball, gets the call to be able to kind of keep things afloat and go out and win a game. And then after that, he's most likely holding a clipboard and Carson Beck's gonna be the one who comes in. No college quarterback accepts that anymore. He gets it though. And the guys who have won legitimate SEC games like Car like we've seen from Stetson Bennett, they're not sitting there accepting their role as a backup and oh, maybe you're gonna play a half this season. So that's a unique luxury that Kirby actually somehow has. Will, go ahead. I think you're hitting the nail on the head here, man. And the quarterback thing is so much about relationship management more than any other position. And that's the thing. Kirby mm. is such a good recruiter. So he comes in with these two blue, chips, blue chip quarterbacks, you know, the two Jakes. And obviously when Fromm takes over, that was the right decision. Okay, but then you get Justin Fields in there. And like you said, he didn't do enough to show him that he was the future. He didn't give him enough passing situations. It was unclear to him after being this great player and this great rep recruit with an NFL future that he had a future there. Um, and then, yeah. you know, the, people, the one that people don't talk about enough for me is Fromm declaring for the draft. Because at the end of the day, if that's your franchise quarterback, you got to be able to talk to that guy and say, hey, man, you were supposed to be, as we talked about, was it Matt Miller that was on here that was like, this guy might go ahead of Tua. That was after yep. his sophomore season. So he comes into that season with all these expectations and falls flat and then dips. And, you know, we talk about maturity concerns. He has that bad season. He declares for the draft. He has all of those, you know, the things come out on his Twitter feed. Yeah. His career is kind of, I mean, he's sitting behind a franchise quarterback right now. And so if Kirby had had the ability to... Two, um, don't, don't forget about Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> uh, two, a former franchise quarterback. And so, honestly, yep. bro, it would shock me if he beat Mitch Trubisky, if we're being honest. So his career honestly couldn't have gone worse because he got bad advice at every step of the way, talking about Fromm. And if you're Kirby, you have to be able to talk to Fromm and say, hey, man, it's in your best interest to stay here. Because if that happens, the Jamie Newman situation oh, never happens. Well, I'm saying you got to have that rapport with with him because you you gotta think about all the guys he picked from over and so if you're gonna pick all those guys you know pick from over all those guys you gotta have this relationship with from you say you can't leave because it's gonna hurt both of us and then that creates the Jamie Newman situation and that creates the Stetson Bennett situation so it's like you can't just it's not like collecting bionicles or Legos or whatever with quarterbacks it's not like receivers you can't play them all and that's his biggest failing so far as a head coach is not being able to coach guys the way they need to be coached the pivoting is, is a really hard thing to do. And Kirby has subscribed to the theory of get as much talent in there as possible in the relationship aspect. It's hard not to look back on this, on certain things and say that he could have done this better, he could have done that better. There's no doubt. There is no doubt about that. And the next one moving forward that everybody's gonna have eyes on is Brock Vandegrift because his situation is going to be way different than Justin Fields. At least it should be. Brock Vandegrift ran a much different offense in high school and it shows. And that's not to say he ran like some option offense where he wasn't ever stretching the field. He was, but you watch the spring game and you see he had happy feet for a bit. And I, I get, that's what he wants to do. He's a mobile guy. Dude kind of looks like jacked Bonex. I'm just going to say it. Um, and, and this, I, I mean, I'm not saying that like to, to hate on him or saying that that's his ceiling or anything like that. But 
where we're evaluating where he is just right now. I'm not saying that's his potential at all. Don't worry, George fans. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, this guy was power cleaning 350, 315 pounds as a high school quarterback. Like, what? Um, but anyways, J JT Daniels talked about Vandegrift after the spring game. And he said a, a point that I thought was, was worth remembering. It is really difficult to go from a high school offense, especially the one that Vandegrift played in, to being asked to run a pro-style offense like what Todd Munkin has now. And why that transition is probably different for someone like Vandegrift than it would have been back in 2017 for Fromm. And I, again, I added that part at the end there, but that's kind of where my head connected that to. It's clear that Vandegrift, his head is swimming a bit. He's not coming in looking like Justin Fields. You saw the fumble that he had on that snap where he just took his eye off it right before. It's also kind of tough to judge a guy like him in the spring game. There was one play where Vandegrift is coming off the edge and he wanted to just take off and run. And it's a spot where usually he'd like muscle through it or he'd fake someone out. And there was a Georgia defender who gets a hand on him and he's down because QBs are one hand touch in a spring game. And then Vandegrift puts his head back and he's like, oh, this sucks. This is the worst. My point is, even though he's a five-star Georgia native like Justin Fields, Kirby is not going to be faced with the same pressure to play him because Georgia fans saw it. And, and they clearly saw, kid's not ready to run this offense just yet. Maybe it'll be different in the fall. Maybe he's going to continue to develop. We're going to hear these reports from all these private you know, practices and whatnot. But the two guys who are ahead of him, who are going to be ahead of him on the depth chart, Carson Beck and, of course, JT Daniels, they're, they're more ready to run this offense. Do I expect Kirby to continue to do like the or thing at number two, at QB2? He's going to do Stetson Bennett, Carson Beck, and then Brock Vandegrift as or, or, or in between all those guys on the depth chart. He'll be hanging off the, the press book. It's just going to yeah. be taped on. <laughs> yep, you know it. It's coming, but that's fine. It, to me, I looked at that that spring game and I saw. I thought clearly Carson Beck is QB two, and again Stetson Bennett trusted in a pinch in those spots where he needs to come in right away. You don't have a week to be able to game plan. This quarterback hierarchy at Georgia has somehow worked out incredibly well, and it's almost like a play where like a wide receiver catches a pass and then he fumbles but then it hits the ball, hits like the exact perfect angle, and he somehow keeps possession and he waltzes in for a touchdown. Kirby did a lot of things well to get to this point. Recruiting JT Daniels could be the thing that ends the 1980 jokes. Sticking with Jake Fromm in 2017 nearly ended the 1980 jokes. Kirby's also lucky that uh, you know the quarterback the quarterback well didn't really kind of run dry when it could have, because I thought it could have about two years ago. And he didn't always read the room like he should have. It took too long to revamp the offense. Again, those are mistakes that he made. Those are well-documented. But I don't know how he can mess this up, at least in 2021, because guys get hurt, and look, that's out of his control. I get that. But it's hard to envision one of these guys leaving this season, at least before you know we've gotten to the very end, gotten to the SEC championship potentially. Maybe Vandegrift could end up being the odd man out in 2022, and he could say, nah, I don't want to be a backup, which would bring all of the Fields comparisons back if he were to be one year and done at Georgia. Though Kirby could always say to him, hey, look, Carson Beck, he's draft eligible after 2022. Just stick around another year, and you're the starter in your third year here. I don't know. I do know that this quarterback room is loaded, and the fact that Kirby also has five-star Gunnar Stockton on the way, it could make 
any sort of Vandegrift transfer that much easier to be able to stomach. And if Carson Beck leaves, well, that, that to me would be just a massive head scratcher, at least without, unless it was like a Dewan Mathis situation where he gets out there, he's just not ready, and then he gets buried on the depth chart because he's not ready. All these people are, are going to come out and say that JT Daniels is going to be a first-round guy. Get ready for the way-too-early 2022 mocks. Those are coming soon. If Kirby somehow messes this up, man, if he messes up this quarterback room, I'll be convinced that he'll never be able to figure out another quarterback room with this offense, with this personnel. Maybe some of you, and Will, I know you're already at this, this point, but I can't look at this Georgia quarterback room and see the path for Kirby to destroy it. <laughs> he'll find a way. No, no, but really, man, and like, listen, time for a rare segment, Mullen Praise. Uh, so one thing that's been great about what Mullen has done is he has found a type of player, not necessarily a high recruited player. Now, some of that might be because it's you know, recruiting woes, but you look at he's consistently gotten guys that have learned the offense. They've waited. They've done all that stuff. And that's why it's such a personality thing, too, because exactly what you said. Now, Kirby has guys that are not only talented, but they understand their roles. And that's as we've seen around the SEC, kind of a bigger deal than being raw talented. Go throw back to the five star quarterback segment we had a couple weeks ago. I'm fascinated to see if Kirby takes the page out of Mullen's playbook and puts Carson back into throw passes this year. Because there were times that Emory Jones would be playing in these games and you're thinking to yourself, what reason is he playing other than he doesn't want, Mullen that is, doesn't want Emory Jones to transfer? Because there were times when, yeah, I know he can justify it by saying he wanted to get the running game going. I don't know. I, I thought there were a lot of parts where it just didn't really make sense. And if you're throwing four play drives for 80 yards and scoring touchdowns, you don't necessarily need to justify the running game not being totally efficient. But will he do that with Carson Beck? Because he can't repeat 2018. If you're going out there and you're putting in, and even, you know, I don't know if he's going to do that with Brock Vandegrift, if that would be the case as well. I would hope Brock Vandegrift is actually going to be able to see the field. It's not going to be like what Carson Beck dealt with last year, where he only gets in for one game and he handed the ball off good as F, as some would say. Um, but a wild situation to continue to monitor, of course. But again, you can't mess this up if you're Kirby. You just can't. Okay. Let's go to my interviews with uh, Kentucky receiver Wandell Robinson and Ole Miss linebacker Momo Sonogo. Let's do Wandell first, and then on the back end, we'll have Momo. So here is Wandell and then Momo. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Kentucky receiver Wandell Robinson. Wandell, it feels strange to just say that your position is receiver because, I mean, anybody who watched you the last two years knows just how versatile you were at Nebraska. And I know that versatility, that explosiveness, that's what Kentucky fans are so excited about and they're so excited to see, you know, since you transferred back to your home state. When someone asks you, though, like, hey, what position do you play? What do you tell them? Do you just say wide out? Yeah, I, I, especially now I stay receiver. Um, I'm not in the backfield anymore. I'm not really taking any handoffs or anything like that. So um, I'm really just working in the slot or working outside now. So it's been good. Do you, do you miss that at all? Or was it to the point where you, you pretty much just decided, you know, this isn't exactly what I envisioned for my college career and I would rather be kind of lined up in, in a different way? 
Um, I mean, there's sometimes I miss it just having the ball in my hands, just being able to just get it right then and there. But um, I like the ways that I'm being used in the slot and being used as a receiver. So um, I'm, I haven't really missed playing running back too much and taking those hits in between the tackles, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal. Like, you take those hits in between the tackles against teams like Iowa and Wisconsin and anybody who knows yeah. and the way that they load the box. I mean, it just it takes a toll on you. And I know that your your okay. skill set is just it, it's so unique. Do you do you feel like you know you're you've you've kind of found your calling in this offense with, with Liam Cohen and been able to kind of see some of the early wrinkles of it so far? Oh yeah. Um just from being in the offense well practicing for five weeks, I love it. Um just being able to do a lot of the things that I really wanted to do being in college. Um, so it's been nice being able to stay and do that, do those things in the slot and outside. You know, how, how big of a selling point was that to you? Because Kentucky's offense last year, no secret, was very different with Eddie Grant, and they've totally re, re, you know, pretty much overhauled everything that they've done from that side of the ball. But you know, you go through the recruiting process kind of again, and I imagine for someone like yourself entering your your pre NFL draft year, you know, you have offers from Alabama, Ohio State that it actually was probably different than your high school recruitment because you've had two years to now see kind of what these places are about. And now having gone through it, you can kind of see what coaches should be selling you, what they shouldn't be selling you. But, you know, you've actually seen kind of the way that they, they use their offenses. How different was it going through that process and having that experience versus what you were kind of told in the recruiting process out of high school? Um, out of high school, you know, everybody kind of tells you what you want to hear and things like that. Um, but being able, well, being in college for two years and really being able to watch teams and see what teams do um, was a big thing for me. And so I could really figure out where I wanted to go after that. Um, but with us, with specifically Coach Cohen, whenever I decided to enter the portal and teams started talking to me and things, I just really wanted to visually see, like, okay, what were the things that you really wanted to do with me? And he was able to really he, – he literally just pulled out the film of Cooper Cup and was like, these are the routes that you're going to run. And – I promise you, like, we'll be able to get you touches out in space and things like that. And actually me being able to visualize and see it in the NFL game, so that helped me a lot too, knowing that it translates to the next level. Um, and so then I was able to really just be able to make that decision, decide to come home and be able to play in a pro style system. Crap. All right. I realize I've been saying this entire time that you're going to fit in the Robert Woods role in the in the Sean McVay mm -hmm. style offense. So it's the Cooper Cup film was what sold you. Like that's that's kind of the the guy that you've looked at throughout this process and thought that's what I can sort of implement and, and bring to this this new style of offense. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, just really being able to find space a lot in the defenses, running a lot of option routes and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's really what that was the big thing. And watching Cooper and how he runs slots from inside and outside, they move him all around in their offense. So he's never usually just in one spot. That's what. So that's what I like a lot. I know you're tight with uh, with Rondell Moore. That's that's pretty well documented at this point. Um, mm -hmm. I think I think he surprised a lot of people by going to Purdue when he did, you know, out of high school because he has these big time offers as well. But he went to a place where he's like, you know what? What's going to be awesome for me is being able to go into Jeff Brom's offense. They have this high powered passing attack, and he's and he's going to be able to get a million targets. And now, I mean, the dude's right. like five eight, and, and he's probably going to end up going in round two of the NFL draft. I know you guys used to train together right. in Louisville as well. Um, are you hoping to impact games in Kentucky the way that he did at Purdue, or do you see yourself a little bit differently than him? 
Um, yeah, I, f- I feel like I can impact the game in the same way. I mean, obviously in the return game too. Um, but just really being able to do those things, that similar things that he did at Purdue, um, I want to do here. Obviously not the same exact things, but um, I definitely think there are similarities in what he did and what I'll be able to do here. I mean, those games where he would just have like 12 or 15 catches, would you text him afterwards being like, man, how, how do you get your coach to sign up for that? Because that sounds, I mean, that's got to be the dream, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we knew, I, I already knew every just about every game he was going to at least get 10-plus catches, something like that. Um, so watching, I, there was no surprise in me just because of how much we talked and things like that. So, Where do you where do you expect your volume to be in this offense? Because it's, it's, it's going to be different. I think you probably already prepared for that. But do you expect it to be kind of that, that double-digit touch range? I know, you know I've heard Liam Cohen talk about you know, he wants to be able to get C-Rod, those 25 touches, and you guys are just going to try and do things with, with a variety of skill players. You've had so much different turnover at the receiver position, but what's kind of the volume that you have in mind? Um, I mean, really, whatever they, need to, whatever they need me to do to win at the end of the day, that's really all I care about is winning at the end of the day, but um, whether that be – 15 touches, whether that be 10 touches at the end of the day, as long as we get the win, that's really all I care about. The touches will come as long as I do my part. Well, it's my offense. I'm throwing 10 screen passes to you every single game, and I'm just going to assume that (laughs) at least two of them are going for six. Um, You know, I'm I'm always curious about this. What's, What's the situation where when you line up, you really get fired up? Like, I imagine... Lining up as a tail as like a tailback out of the backfield, you know, maybe you're in the pistol against an eight man box in the Big Ten is way different than lining up in the slot, realizing there's going to be like uh, you're going to get a free release, you're going to have a linebacker covering you or something like that. Like, what's what's the situation that when you line up at the line of scrimmage, you say to yourself, "All right, I've got one right now." Um, really, whenever if you line up and then you're just kind of scanning the defense and you see that linebacker is looking at you and you know you kind of have a route that he can't keep up with you. And uh, you kind of know as long as my quarterback sees me, he's going to throw me the ball, give me a chance. Those are the kinds of – those are the ones that you know can happen for big plays, you know. Do you – do you have you gotten to that point where it's like a look at the line of scrimmage or something, like a little bit of a look over, a nod, a wink, or there's something like that, or like you raise your hand a little bit to let him know that – I mean, you would you would hope that your quarterback would be able to recognize that at this at this point, but you know, is there mm-hmm. is there kind of like a go to thing that you have for that spot? Oh no! Right now, like our quarterbacks are doing a really good job of identifying everything and getting the ball to the right spots. So I haven't really been too worried about having to make sure that they know where I am and things like that. So it's been pretty easy. Uh, this this past year, besides just dealing with you know dealing with the COVID season all the daily testing, and I know that was a grind, but how difficult was it for you to, to be away from your family with you in Nebraska and then back in Kentucky? Um, it was actually really tough, especially my mom. She actually had COVID um, while I was d- during the season while I was playing. So um, it was really tough for me, and especially because she was always at every just about every one of my games as long as she could make it and was feeling well. Um so it was it was really tough for me, and that was that was really a big reason why I decided to come home to make sure that I was around her and um, was just able to support her with anything she needed. 
when were you able to, to, to get back home to Kentucky during the year? Because I know when you guys had the bowl game discussion, there was a, a lot of talk about the mental fatigue, and that's why you guys ultimately didn't didn't decide to play in a bowl game at Nebraska. And it was just, you know, Scott Frost brought that up, and you know, so many guys, the out-of-state guys, just haven't really been able to kind of get back. There hasn't been that time. How, how often were you able to, to get back and see your family? Um, well, so we, we were sent home in March and we had went back much earlier than most teams, at least like from friends that I had on other teams, I would kind of ask them like, when are you all deciding to go back? And they're like, we're still home right now. And so we were back way before a lot of teams and we were practicing and working out, doing a bunch of lifts. And so, and then we, so I ended up getting back out there around, I think like May and then got to come home one more time. I'm pretty sure did that summer. And then we were there really from that June, July period all the way until the season was over. Because especially with the Big Ten, they didn't know when we were going to start and they kept right. pushing the date back. And so it was just a it was just a big cluster. And so like they never really knew when they could give us a break. Just they didn't know when we were going to start playing. So they just had to be ready at all times. So we were practicing a lot. Um, before, before our first game in October, we were practicing really from July, August. By September. the end of the year. And then, our, yeah. So. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, by by the end of the year, there. I mean, you had to just feel the mental fatigue, and especially like the way that Nebraska was kind of talked about with the the return to play and and all that. And I know you know people nationally, for whatever reason, hated on Nebraska for like actually wanting to play football, and probably the lack of recent success has something to do with that, as it always does. But um, it just the, the mental grind at the end of the year, did it just kind of catch up to you once December hit and you you've kind of looked back on on the year that you guys had. Yeah, it was definitely a mental. It was definitely a mental thing. But for me, in our last game, I had basically broke my rib. So um, I really, if we were going to go play in a bowl game, I was just kind of like, I don't really think I'll even be able to play. So um, that was kind of the thing with me. That's because that's why I was like, I don't even like we play in a bowl game, we play, but I don't think I'll be able to play. Um, and so that was just the big thing right there. And so that's a lot of guys were really just mentally worn down. Um, even like just towards the end of the year, guys are like, I'm just kind of ready for this to be over with and ready to kind of get home and just to kind of take a break from football, you know. I, so you're the perfect person to ask for this. How, how ridiculous was it that Justin Fields, with a broken rib, did what he did against Clemson? Yeah, that's whenever because I was like, I don't know exactly how that feels. <laughs> and I know they, I know he probably went in that ten. They probably gave him a shot or something. So. Um, he's been at least a little bit all right, but I know definitely a couple of weeks after you still aren't feeling well, you still, it still hurts to breathe and move certain ways, you know? So it's, it's tough. Um, spe- speaking of Nebraska real quick, before I forget, I need you to do me a favor. Um, Nebraska gets a bad rap nationally and I realize that's where you just left, but I, I spent two and a half years out there. And I, I left there with a great impression, people, and and all that. And I, mm-hmm. so I guess what I'm asking you is, is say something nice about Lincoln or Nebraska, just so that I'm not the only one on this podcast who has ever said something nice about Nebraska. Nebraska, I love Nebraska. I love my time in Nebraska. There's, an, I have no bad feelings towards the people in Nebraska, Nebraska at all. Um, I have, I still have some of my best friends that live out there that are on the team and things like that. I still communicate with some of the people out there. Um, but it's just a really, it's a really friendly place. Everybody out there cares about you. Um, it's, there's nothing bad to really say about Nebraska. Once you go out there and you really feel in, you feel the love, you you understand why people are really not, why everybody likes it out there, at least whenever you go out there. Um, I mean, there's 
that's in their fan base is just that's crazy. Um, yeah. You don't really see much like that. I haven't been anywhere else that's like that. And even whenever I decided to leave, a lot of them were still wishing me well and things like that. They were wishing me the best of wherever I went. So um, that's just how I knew that Nebraska was just a really it's a special place out there. Yeah, it's Nebraska nice is, is a real thing. And I always tell anybody who wants to listen, it's trust me when I say they, they treat it very much like SEC programs. It is it is the real deal. That atmosphere is is just unbelievable. Um, you know, you end up going to, to Nebraska out of out of high school and you commit to Scott Frost's program. Your huddle tape is a must watch. I mean, I think I saw it's got like 44,000 views or, or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. I mean, your escapability, different level. I, I saw this play, and I think it's it might be like the first play on there where you're on the sideline, and it looks like the entire defense is around you, and a couple seconds later, you had already scooted past all of them. You're basically jogging your way to the end zone, which is just impossible. What I love most, though, about watching your huddle is seeing the reaction that high school defenders have when you would put your foot in the dirt. Like It was almost like what, what DeAndre Swift used to do at Georgia. So I guess my question, besides how did you get such a great huddle film, is did you ever feel bad doing that to guys in high school? Because if I ever got to that point, I probably have that thought in the back of my mind, at least a little bit of like, wait a minute, should I embarrass this kid in front of in front of his own family here? Like, did you ever have that that realization of what you were capable of doing? Um. Well, there was, there was a couple of games. Like there would be times like I'm just kind of open field. I really feel like that. Um, and so it kind of got to it got to that point, but I didn't really try to do anything too bad or um, feel bad for anybody. I was at the South there kind of trying to play football and make plays, and at the end of the day. <laughs> the cut, have you, have you always had that? Has that just always been something in your repertoire, like back to, I don't know, like, like junior high or something like that. Like, have you have you been doing that to people forever? Because if one day you just discover that you can cut in the open field like that, that doesn't seem fair. Um, I believe so. I really started that when I was like eight. That was kind of when I've, I've always kind of had that, which is one of the dead legs that uh, one of my coaches. I used to reverse field a lot whenever I was really young, like five or six, and. So then he really kind of started getting mad. He's like, I just need you to go vertical. And so I just kind of developed just that one stick and go and just get upfield. And ever since then, it's kind of been my move. <laughs> have you ever, I mean, have you ever hurt your own, your own knees, ankles by doing that? Because it looks like you should. No, I actually haven't. I've, all, I've had people tell me, how do you do it? But it's just, you know, just practice, I guess. And it's just kind of instinct. So I don't really think about it too much and just go out there and do it. How how close were you to committing to Kentucky out of high school? Well, actually, I did commit. I was first staying committed, first. I should say. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I was. It was. It was just kind of a up in the air thing. Whenever I had committed at the time to Kentucky, I was. It was kind of a lot of pressure and things like that that was going into that decision. And then as time went on, and I just I kept talking to Nebraska and things like that, and kept watching Kentucky and I just felt it was just best for me to go to Nebraska at least and do what I can do because at that point I had known what I was going to do out there well at least planned to do and I had seen it and um, just the trajectory of that offense had looked better for me than coming here at that at that point in time yeah I think I think you made I mean I think both calls were 
were spot on. And I think you, your ability to recognize just what an offense is bringing to the table is important. I, I think, you know, when you entered the, the transfer portal, I think it surprised a lot of people. But, you know, there was all of a sudden very quickly after, it, everybody kind of connected the dots and said, Wandale was from Kentucky. He was committed to Kentucky during high school before he ended up flipping to Nebraska. Were you dead set on Kentucky immediately after you made the initial announcement that you were transferring? Um, I had I had the idea that I was coming back, but I was still going to hear out some schools, especially that were closer to home, um, and that still had the style of play that I wanted to be in. Um, so I, before I officially made the announcement, I just wanted to kind of hear some schools out before I ended up making the decision. What was the number one, number one selling point, the thing to you that just said, yeah, I, I can't turn this down? Um, well, coming back home, it was, it was it, for coming back home. Yeah, coming yeah, just, just coming, yeah, coming back to, to Kentucky. Um, Coach Cohen was a big part of that, um, being able to see what, that, what he was bringing to the table. And then, um, obviously, my mom, that was the, the other biggest reason. So, um, those are really... Those are the two big reasons of coming. What's your impression of Stoops now that you've basically gotten a chance to, to see him, not in the, the recruiting setting, but getting to actually see him out on the practice field? What, what are your thoughts of him so far? Oh, I love him. I mean, he gets fired up whenever, especially whenever we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Um, he's a he's a really laid-back coach, though. He's treats us like pros he wants us to practice like pros and things like that but he's really still the kind of the same guy that he was whenever I was being recruited by him so he's always told me straight up and hasn't lied to me yet so but before you go here I, I want to talk quickly about quarterbacks with you and you, you brought that up before and the way that they're they're kind of developing in this offense I, I've heard a lot of good things about Bo Allen so far tell me your mm -hmm. your impressions of getting a chance to work with him um, well, I actually got to play against Bo in high school, so I kind of already knew what Bo was kind of like and things like that. But, I mean, he's a prototypical, prototypical quarterback that you can think of. Um, he wants to sit in the pocket. He wants to throw the ball. He has a really strong arm and can really make just about all the throws. Um, even Joey. Joey looks really good, too. Joey can really throw the deep ball, and um, they both have played really, really well this spring, so. I know Joey's really worked on on his accuracy and trying to get to that level where he can show defenses that, that that he's more than a runner and he's really progressed. Even going back to I remember watching him in his his first spring game at Auburn. How has he been able to kind of develop and progress in this offense? Does it does it feel like he is more than capable of running and like he is a, developing into more of a natural fit over time here? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you could tell. I mean, he was just a little uncomfortable at first, just because he wasn't used to the pro style and just kind of some of the play action things. But once he kind of got comfortable and was able to start making plays, it was, it was fun. And he, you could tell he's just got way more comfortable over time. And I expect him to do the same thing in the summer. I want to close out. I got five rapid fire questions here. It can be just quick first, whatever comes into your mind, or if you got, you know, 10 minute story that you want to go into, uh, either is, either is good with me. Is, is that good with you? Yep. Good with me. Excellent. Excellent. All right. First one, not including Nebraska. What's the best in stadium atmosphere that you've experienced? Alabama. Oh, did you go to uh, on a recruiting visit? To to recruit at least. Yeah, I took my dad. I took my one of my official visits to Alabama, and that was nice. They played Texas A&M. 
Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, not including Kentucky, what's the place that you're most looking forward to playing at this year? Ooh, either Mississippi State, Georgia, or South Carolina. Okay, all good, all good. Do you have a a, a number in mind? I know I asked you before about number of total touches per game. Do you have a number in mind for what you for what you'd like to hit in terms of yards from scrimmage for this whole year? Um, I don't. Um, I mean, I know from my freshman year I was a little over a thousand. Um, this past year we only played like eight games, so I was around like seven hundred. So really, whatever. I mean, we'll see how the season goes, and then from that point, I kind of develop like what I what the end goal should be. So, favorite NFL player to watch? Tyreek Hill. Oh, that's a good one. Gosh, that's a scary thought. If you're going to be Tyreek Hill in this offense, <laughs> goodness gracious. Um, all right, and last one here for you. The best part about being back in your home state of Kentucky is what? Uh, being able to watch my little sister grow up. Um, whenever I was out in Nebraska, as soon as COVID happened, uh, she was born. So um, being able to watch her grow up is going to be nice. So That's awesome. That's awesome. Wondell, this has been awesome, man. Really, really appreciate the time. Looking forward to you becoming a, a household name in the SEC. I think people are going to get to know you and this offense in a hurry. Uh, wish you the best of luck on everything this year, man. Yep, thank you. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Ole Miss linebacker Momo Sonogo. Gosh, I I love saying your name, man. Let, let's, let's start right there because your birth name is Mohamed Sonogo, but I got to say the rebranding to Momo Sonogo, I mean, you made an all-time great name. When did, when did you make that switch and how did all that happen? So it happened because uh, my first name is actually pronounced Mohamed, so it's Mohamed Sonogo, but a lot of people have a hard time with that, so... My friends in middle school just made a nickname for me, Momo. Uh, like my brother and his friends, all of them, they made a nickname, and it just stuck ever since. I mean, if I were you, I think I would just say my name over and over, Momo Snogo, Momo Snogo. Do you do you catch yourself doing that? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't. But uh, it's it's interesting. Like I never hear my uh, like my first name actually being said. Like everybody, just, some people think my name is Momo. It's a great name. It's just, it's just a great name. I, I always kind of think that, uh, you know, the spring workouts, they, they seem like a bit of a grind, especially for veterans like yourself. It's not like you're just showing up on campus and everything's new and fun and exciting. But I imagine after not getting those spring workouts last year, were you, were you guys just kind of chomping at the bit to really get back after it this spring, knowing that things were a bit more normal? Oh, yeah. I've never been so, uh, like, excited for spring camp and, like, just be out there playing football and not having to wait another year. Um, like, that kind of just really flipped the perspective for a lot of us. Just, like, we get to do this. This is a privilege. Like, let's take every opportunity, take every practice, like, take nothing for granted. So it's been really fun, and we're glad things are going back to normal. Does that matter when you're coming off the bullwind the way that you guys did? Like, you know, you've been around long enough where you've been on both sides of the coin with that. Obviously, there was the way that 2019 ended, of course, with the Egg Bowl. And then, and then last year where you beat my alma mater, actually, Indiana, and it's like this defensive-fueled victory. And, and I always wonder about that off-season momentum thing and how much that actually matters. Like, you guys also returning all those defensive starters, so that, that probably adds to it. But do you guys get that? 
that sense where there's, I mean, it's just good vibes at spring right now. It's just a really, really fun time to be in Oxford. Yeah, it feels good. It feels really good. You know, baseball is doing well. It's a good atmosphere here in Oxford, so it's fun to be here. And then off of what you were saying, that momentum, like people wonder whether or not that's real. Like that, the, the momentum off of last season, especially with a lot of returning players, is real. And the note we left off on, and the, the momentum we're carrying through spring and, and being able to really like deep dive deep into this defense, which we didn't get the opportunity to do uh, prior to the season last year. So really getting into it and everybody's comfortable and making calls and making checks. And it, it just it just feels really good. It feels really different. And I'm excited about it. You're also pursuing your MBA right now? Like, first of all, you're way, way smarter yeah, actually, than I, I am. Graduated. I graduated uh, in less than a month on April 30th. Holy cow. So so tell me about that because I got to imagine that's not a typical thing to talk about with, with your teammates. Oh, yeah, you know, what, what are you doing on Thursday? Or, oh, I've, I've got a class for, for my MBA. I mean, explain kind of what that's like and how you're able to, to manage all that. Oh, it's, it's been really awesome because um, one, of, one of the, the – so Mac Brown, you know, the punter, he – is in the NBA program with me, and we both graduate. We both graduate in April 30th, so we've had every class together, reminding each other on due dates and stuff like that. And it's been really difficult because um, it's a really extensive program. You know, there's a lot. Like, it's only a one-year program, so they just smash, like, two years' worth of courses in a calendar year. And it's a lot of assignments and a lot of reminders and stuff like that. And so we keep each other updated and and reminding each other on assignments, keeping us up on what's going on because – there's no in-class classes. It's basically on your own right now. Um, so it's been really nice having Mac there with me, and we've been grinding through it together. What do you want to do for a living when uh, when football's over? Um, dream dream job is, you know, be out there on ESPN, uh, commentating games and stuff like that. Um, but, I mean, really my MO is just to be successful in anything and everything I do, regardless of what it may be. So I'm just – doing everything possible to set myself up for success, whatever it may be. If you already have your MBA in the next, you know, in the next month and you've got a full other year at Ole Miss, what do you, what do you get to do then from an academic standpoint? Do you basically get to, just get to make football your, your job for a bit? Yeah. If I end up turning out that way, um, but, but we'll have to see how it shakes out, but I'm definitely not going to start on my doctorate. Uh, my dad was telling me to do that. I was like, Dad, I don't, I don't think so. But it's, it's my turn to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> just a casual conversation to have with your dad. Oh, you know, I don't really want to pursue my doctorate just yet. No big deal. Um, I'm sure everybody <laughs> can totally relate to that. Uh, you made you made such a splash last year for speaking your truth on off-the-field issues. You were at the forefront of two really big causes that consumed not just the SEC, not just college football, but our entire country. Let's let's first start with your role in the Black Lives Matter movement. You organized a march in June with your teammates, and it was one of those powerful images that we, we kind of saw throughout the summer, and I think and I hope it stayed with people. Tell us how that came together and why you felt compelled to take the action the way that you did. Um, so... No, I was really close with Ryder Anderson, who actually transferred to your alma mater, uh, but I transferred over there. Uh, but I was really close with him, and we talked about things that were happening a lot, and um, you know, wanted 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 to wanted to make a difference, like in the community. We weren't directly thinking like like we want to do a march, um, 
but we wanted to, you know, like talk to the uh, chancellor about getting the statues removed and then go talk to the, the, the boards about getting the statue on the square removed, uh, the Confederate statues. And, and then it turned into like someone asked us like, what are you guys like actually doing to help the community? And we were just like, you know, you're right. We should, we should try to make an impact on the community. So we wanted to hold a march, uh, LA United and like have all our teammates there and um, raise money through selling t-shirts uh, to give to the Boys and Girls Club of North Mississippi to like give back to the to the really the black youth of Mississippi and also uh, to raise money for uh, a family of uh, a victim of police brutality. Um, and we did that and we raised uh, three thousand dollars for each and it was it was just a really cool thing to just see the community come together. There were so many people like around the community, uh, like the the, the the cops, the the, sheriff, the sheriff's department, and OPD were out there supporting us, walking with us. Uh, it was just a beautiful moment, uh, and I'm really glad we got to uh, lead that. I think that's uh, that's something. The last part that you added in there, having the support from the community, such an important element of this because. If, if you're at odds with the community, it's it's a little bit of a, of a different feel to it. But what did it mean to, to see not only the support from the community, but the way that both coaches in the state of Mississippi were able to respond to what Kylan Hill was able to do, which was start this this movement to, to get the, the, the flag changed, the state flag changed in Mississippi. What did it mean just to kind of see everyone seemingly com- coming together and, and, you know, feeling like that you guys were a united front. You know, it was really awesome. And, um, it, and the reason why, the reason why I think it was really awesome uh, is because, you know, they're not from here. aren't from here. They never spent time in this to be like that. So to see them step up and, and make a splash in a, in a big way like that, without even you know really getting their feet wet in the state, and it's the first thing they did. That that's huge. That's putting themselves up for a lot of criticism from a lot of different people, but they didn't care because it was the right thing to do. And you know it was awesome to like see our coaches do that, and, and they gained a lot of respect for them. Did you face any kind of backlash for your role in that? Because oh, I, I remember seeing Kellen Mond at Texas A and M. You know they he was part of a group of Texas A&M players who protested a controversial statue on campus. And like you're just talking about, there were videos that went viral of, of, of Kellen having a conversation with some who protested what he was doing. And it wasn't, it wasn't violent necessarily, but it was just a reminder of, Hey, you know, not, not everybody is going to be on that one side. Did you encounter anything quite like that? And if so, how'd you handle it? Um, you know, it's just, Stuff like little comments on social media, which I'm not, I'm not worried about people that aren't going to say anything to my face. And then somebody sent like a letter to me uh, from like a, under a fake alias and stuff like that. Like it's just uh, like blasphemous things. And I'm, you know, I'm not really worried about that. That's just stuff you look past and ignore. Like people, if someone wanted this, I actually like someone DM me. Uh, with, with how they were thinking, and I said, you know what, like, I'm willing to have a conversation with you about this. We back and forth, and they gave me thank you for having this conversation. Like, they appreciated me uh, reaching out and, and taking the time to explain to them how I'm doing, how I'm seeing things. 
Um, and it, that's how you help everybody grow. But, I mean, the people that just lash out and try to say hurtful things get a reaction out of you. That's just people to ignore. There's, there's no point. They're just, they're just trying to find a way to make you wrong in the end. Somebody sent you a letter, like a handwritten letter? They sent it, like, to your apartment or something? Uh, they, they sent it up here to the facilities, a handwritten letter with spelling mistakes everywhere. Oh, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. That's when you know, all right, yeah. you don't have to, you know, that's, those are, those are easier to, to bypass. Um, you, you're yeah, also, <laughs> that's a good idea. That's a good idea. You're also a, a major voice in speaking out about the, the COVID protocols put in place by these universities. And you shared your concern with being forced to, and I, force is the wrong verb. Um, I don't mean to, to say that, but you know, you were, you were in a position where you were attending in-person classes with students coming back to campus. And obviously they didn't have the same sort of motivating factor of, Hey, we need to be able to not get COVID so that we can actually have a season here. And you got the chance to, uh, along with a bunch of SEC players, you got to address the conference medical advisory board, SEC officials, which included Greg Sankey. Um, just explain kind of that whole experience and what went into that. Yeah, so, I mean, that's our SEC leadership committee, uh, which I'm the chairman of, and uh, we meet all the time, and, and we have conversations about whatever is going on, whether it's in the SEC, in our individual schools, or just, like, in the nation in general, um, and uh, that was one where they wanted to invite, like, an extra teammate from every school and just have them, like, you know, sit, sit down and, and have a conversation. They wanted to know what we were thinking and, and know if there were any questions we had. So it was kind of more of that environment. There was no, like, we need to hold a meeting and we have issues that we have to, like, it was just, you know, you, you wanted to hear, like, what we're thinking. It was just kind of, you know, playing devil's advocate. Like, what are you guys thinking about this? Like, what were you guys doing because of this? And just, just coming to an understanding of, like, where – the SEC was coming from with their COVID protocols and, and stuff like that. Like the SEC didn't do anything like uh, the Big Ten or the Pac-12 did. We didn't make some, you know, committee up to boycott the season. We, that, that's what we did instead. We wanted to know, like, okay, we're not doing any of that, but we just want to know, like, what are you guys doing? And, and did you guys think of this and and things like that? It was it was it was more of a conversation, you know, just asking questions. Uh, that I, that I thought of and stuff like that, just uh, normal stuff like that. It didn't, you know, because it had gotten like in a data leak or something like that. Someone recorded it and a lot of things were taken out of context to kind of you know, find views, but it was a more comfortable conversation than what it seemed like. I read the Washington Post story, I remember, uh, that had your comments and it kind of made it seem like you guys were basically on the brink of protesting or, or not wanting to play and so basically from from what you're saying yeah i mean that stuff can be can be skewed a little bit but to be able to to as you said play de devil's advocate in that spot how important was it to be able to have that conversation with greg sankey because it seemed like sankey in terms of power five commissioners you couldn't have asked for a much better job with the way that he handled everything, the way that he was able to troubleshoot a very fluid situation from having that conversation with him that day. How did maybe your perspective of him and the way that he was handling this kind of change? Oh, it was, it was awesome. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the guys stepped up and said, like he really wanted, uh, was like, he said, guys on our team, we really want 
to be tested three times a week from a third party, you know, just to make sure, like, you know, like, not that you distrust anybody, but that, like, it's not some, no, there's no conflict of interest, and if, if somebody needs to sit out, they sit out to protect all of us. And it was taken, like, that's a great idea, and it was immediately put in, and that's exactly what we did. We third party tested three times a week, and the SEC, like, every team maybe had, like, one little breakout for, like, one game, but it was, for the most part, a very safe season for every player in the SEC. And, and um, just, like, you know, little things like that, that uh, it was just a conversation. He heard what we were thinking about, and he did everything in his power to make us feel comfortable so that we could focus on football when it came time for football. And he did an awesome job. And also, I mean, you get to tell a higher up, hey, working conditions aren't right, which is like, that's pretty much the American dream right there. Like so many people won't get that opportunity to be able to have that open conversation. And you did. So that's, that's a, that's a win in my book. Um, I, I hate to ask the whole, like, what was it like playing in a COVID season? Because I, I'm sure you've been asked a variation of that by everyone, but it, it seemed like there was if there was ever a year that was just challenging to be a college athlete, it was this one. Like, I'm sure it had to be a grind with all the COVID testing and, you know, getting tested three times a week. The fact that you didn't have these full capacity crowds. So even the good moments maybe don't feel quite as good as they usually do. And you couldn't even get the typical, like, post-game celebration. And, you know, I can I can say that, you know, with you because you're old enough to be able to hit the square if you want to have a good time after a win, whatever. <laughs> um, but what was, what was the toughest point in the year that you had where you're just like, man, this is, this is a grind. This is a lot right now. Um, you know, I would say it was about midway through the season, you know, because we had uh, a really long fall camp. Like, um, it was like a pre-fall camp to the fall camp. Uh, I mean, and that was all for our protection, you know. Usually when, like, when there was the NFL lockout in 2011, there was a really high increase in injuries because guys were away from football for over a year uh, and then just came back and started playing. A lot of guys got hurt. A lot of guys got really bad injuries. Uh, they ended up seeing them out of here. So uh, we really worked our way back into playing football, and that protected a lot of us, but at the same time, made the season really long and really eggs on and your body gets tired and there's no breaks and, and you never know who's going to be out. You're always thinking, like, there's always that stress, like, am I going to get close contact? Like, I don't even have to have it. I can get close contact in this two, three weeks. Um, and it's just a very high-stress season. And, like, halfway through, you're just thinking, like, man, like, I got to, I like, we got to keep going through. We got to keep fighting through. And our team did a really good job of responding. The coach did a good job of, like, you know, really protecting us. And, uh, like, every now and then get a practice with, with just shorts on, really get a chance to, like, you know, catch our breath and relax. And uh, that's why we were able to finish the season on such a high, strong note. I thought if there was a, a, a good year to have a coach with a personality like Kiffin, 2020 seemed like it was it. A guy who can loosen things up and, you know, he doesn't necessarily come off as the guy who gets bogged down by that. And, you know, he's certainly a unique personality. I, I got to imagine you've got a, a favorite uh, Coach Kiffin story. What's what's maybe your favorite one so far? Um. My favorite, my favorite story is just the way 
it, it, it's not less of a story and just like him every day, like the way he competes, like really gave us a lot of energy throughout the whole COVID situation. Like it was like, why are we worried about COVID when we're playing football? We love this. I like, like that man loves football so much. And to just have his competitive nature around us, all we do all day is just compete. You know, if we're supposed to have a, a, like one period is this, like goal line, and another period is that. And if they don't score in goal line, we're skipping the next period. We're doing goal line until something happens. It's all about competition, and I just love that. Like he will legitimately get mad if if the offense is not performing, and our coaches right there with him. It's just this environment where like it doesn't matter if we're playing tic tac toe. We're competing to beat the offense every day, and they're competing to beat us every day. I've just never really been in an environment like this. It's, it's so it's so fun. It really brings you know, that childhood funness back to the game. I remember talking to to Macarell last year and about just how how different it, it felt in so many different areas. And Kiffin did just such a good job of of making that competition fun and something that guys really looked forward to. Um, Kiffin obviously has some fun on the sidelines. I, I'm not sure if you've been oh, yeah. asked this before, but how far away were you from the thrown clipboard? And then second part, has he ever thrown a clipboard like that in practice? Oh, I actually did not see the thrown clipboard at all. We were like on the bench, like writing up, making corrections and stuff like that. Uh, I, the first time I saw about it was like when we got back in the locker room, got on Twitter, and I just, it's all over every platform of <laughs> social media. And I was like, what did this happen? But, um, no, like, his thing in practice is, like, like he he looks at the defense, looks at, like, knows what the play is, and, like, he'll just put his hands up before, like, saying, like, hey, just let me know defense is a touchdown right here. And, like, we've really took that as a challenge, like, because um, we've really upped our disguising game, which is putting that on his toes, making him so much better of a quarterback. But, like, he, he that, that's his thing. Like, he'll put his hands up, signal a touchdown, like, while we're getting set for our defense. It's just like, all right, we'll see. Do you guys have you had moments though where he's put his hands up early and then you've like picked it off or it's like a sack or or something like that to just kind of like give it right back to him? Oh yeah, all the time, all the time, and that's because like whenever he does that, like that just gives us that second win. Like, all right, you're gonna see because like we're competing out there, and it's like this is like I don't care what happens, that y'all will not score if you put your hands up, and. uh if you go back and look at the play when he throws his clipboard, before he throws the clipboard, he's standing there with his hands up, singling a touchdown beforehand, um, just like he does in practice. And so, like, that's literally, like, imagine that on the sideline, but behind you, like, right behind that, and that's just all the defense sees every time. And, like, at first, like, they were scoring a lot, but, like, now, like, you know, whatever we see, it, like, it's just, all right, let's disguise a little bit more. Let's make this a little bit harder for Matt to read. Let's make this, like, let's just rush a little bit harder, like, Whatever happens, they're not going to score. So that's fine. Uh, 2019, Mike McIntyre comes in, and you guys were just noticeably different. And I, I say this all the time, but it just looked like it was at, – it, it, at least it felt like watching this on, on TV – it felt like you guys were just in such better spots from the defensive side to be able to make plays. And it wasn't really a depth issue or a talent issue. And I had I had Coach Mack on the pod a few weeks ago, and I know from talking with him just how much it meant to him to spend that year in Oxford. When a guy comes in like that, and you've seen now several defensive coordinators since you've been there, 
when do you kind of know that things are going to be different and that he's going to be the right fit with what you guys have going? Um, I think it was like when he had had a couple meetings with us and just got the vibe of the team and he was like, I really need to make sure these guys understand defense. Because, uh, you know, like, no, like nothing against McGriff. McGriff was a great coach, you know, uh, had a great defense. It, defense has proven to work, but, you know, guys just weren't really understanding what they were supposed to do. We did so many hours of walkthrough over and over and over and over again, walking the same exact play against every single defense that we ran. And it was really just like even the guy that does not understand defense at all is going to understand exactly where he's supposed to be. And, I mean, it just, like, it would, it just seems so grueling, like walking through so much. Like, instead of doing meetings, we're just walking through every single day. But it really showed up, like you said, on game day because guys were in the right spots and making plays. If I said to you, Momo, I'm an alien, I've never experienced college football, but I want to learn about the Egg Bowl, what's the best way to describe it? Oh. That is a good question. That, that's I, it right I, there. I, that's it right I, there. I, a, I, deep, I, a deep sigh. That's perfect. <laughs> I say the best way is to uh, buy a ticket and come and just sit in there and you'll understand and you'll be in the same boat as me. <laughs> it's uh, coming from Texas, you know, like not knowing, not understanding, like, you know, the, the rivalry I knew was uh, A&M and, and UT and then and A&M went to the SEC and that, that kind of ended. Um, but here is just a little bit different. Like, it's like fans don't even like each other. Like, it's not like fans don't like the team. Like, I don't like you because you're a fan of the other school. It's just the culture of, of we're going to beat you. Like, no matter what happens, rest of our schedule, like, we just want to beat each other. And it's, it's just so funny to me. Because, uh, like, I've never been in a rivalry. Like, even my high school rivalry, they were, like, they were big. But, like, you know, like, after the game, it was like, whatever. Like, this is a year-round rivalry. Every, tennis, <laughs> competing. Every sport is just a rivalry. It's crazy. Last year, you guys win the Egg Bowl, and then I, I know the LSU game happens, and it didn't finish the way that you guys wanted, but you get the Outback Bowl, and you deliver what I thought was your guys' best defensive performance of the year. I, I've talked a, before a bit about how much I thought Otis Reese getting into the lineup was just so important for you guys. Was it as simple as that, or was there another reason why you guys just kind of seemed to figure things out down the stretch last year? Um, you know, it, it's, it's always super helpful having a huge playmaker like Otis in there uh, making plays and, and giving give confidence to the defense. But it was also just coach preaching every day, like as the season went on, like you guys will finish this season and we will finish the season the hottest team in the country and that will give us momentum to go kick butt, you said butt, kick butt in 2021. <laughs> and that's just what we put our minds down to do, like we're like, we're going to get back on track. Like we're like losing is is not who we are, um, and and you know people got to really understand what the SEC is. Like that team went in, it was dominating in the Big Ten, and then they came and played the SEC team where they were mad. They didn't even want to play us. They said they we like they don't deserve to play us, and we go out and beat them. And it's not for lack of being prepared. It's just 
the competition we're playing in here is, is just a little bit different. And that was a cool opportunity to really show that. I can totally picture uh, Coach Kiffin saying kick butt. I'm sure that's exactly what he said. Good job <laughs> editing. Clean word for word. <laughs> word for word. Um, all right, I got five rapid fire questions here I'll get you out on. Um, so it's just kind of first thing that comes to mind, or it can be, you know, if you got a 10 minute answer, that's fine too, but we'll just go kind of first instinct and we'll get you out of here on that. Is that good? Yeah, that sounds good. Excellent. All right. First one, toughest non Ole Miss quarterback that you faced in the SEC. Hmm. You know what? That's a good, that's a really good question. And I would say, um, Last name always says the match. That's with S. Uh, number eight for a couple of years ago from Auburn. Remember? Are you talking about? Are you talking about Jared? Yeah, Jared Stidham a couple of years ago. Yeah, that, that kid had an attitude about him, and and, and he was a tough guy. I liked him. I liked him a lot. Dang. Okay, I wasn't expecting you to go that far back to it. That's that's a good answer though. I like that. Um, <laughs> Similar, really similar. Toughest non Ole Miss running back that you've had to tackle in the SEC. Ooh. Um. Brian Najee. Gosh, that guy's a tough one. What? What is it about Najee? Because like, the way that he is able to get that like gallop step. Just looks. I always say it's it's Adrian Peterson like, and not not that he's exactly Adrian Peterson, but. He just looks like he dominates people in a way that he shouldn't. But at that size, there's something unique about the way that he runs. Like, does isn't it supposed to be a little bit easier to tackle a guy that's like as tall as he is, but he's still so effective at the goal line? Like, what 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 makes I it mean, so difficult to bring him down? Though, but it, it's it's really you know he has he's big he's big he's like um, the size of an inside linebacker, and uh, which most running backs aren't. Like a big running back is like two fifteen. He's 235, like looks like, feels like. So um, he's big. His legs are wide. And so when you try to wrap up that long stride that you see that, like, looks effortless, it's hard to wrap up both legs when they're far apart and they have, like, a wide radius. So you really have to go in there. It's not like any other back you, you usually tackle. you got to get all of them when you get them. Um, so that's what gives guys a lot of trouble. Um, but – like that—that's what I would say. It is uh, just like being so heavy and having a long stride. Uh, you really got to get both legs when you tackle. Fortunately for you, he's gone this year, so that's good. That's good. Do not have to worry about dealing with with Najee. Um, more <laughs> terrifying sights: John Rice plumbling the open field or staring into the eyes of Landshark Tony. <laughs> Last night, Tony, man, that's a, that's a scary face. I don't know if you see it, but man, you gotta put that in front I mean, of the opposing team's tunnel. Oh, I, I can't look into Landshark Tony's eyes. If he were to ever stare stare me down, I just immediately make a beeline in the opposite direction. So you're you're a tougher <laughs> dude than I am. No doubt about it. Um, make a case for the Egg Bowl as the best rivalry in the SEC. Oh, no, no, no shot. No shot. Any other team has a rivalry like we do. You know, Auburn and Alabama, they, they still be friends after the game. There is no friendship here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fun rivalry to be a part of. And, uh, I mean, like I said earlier, people got to show up to see what it's like. But, like, no chance. The, no, no chance the Iron Bowl has it. 
All right, last one. I'll get you out of here on a successful 2021 season at Ole Miss is what? Successful 2021 season is Ole Miss as a top three defense in the country and uh, making it to the playoffs and going to try to win it all. That's a successful season. That's what we expect. I mean, I don't know if you can set the bar any higher than that. That is, <laughs> that is awfully high, my friend. Top three, top three defense in the country. Holy cow! That's, dang, that's just going for it. But you guys do have a million returning starters, so that is a a very good thing working in your favor. You guys have a ton of firepower, obviously. So I'm looking forward to, looking forward to what's in store for Ole Miss in 2021. You guys were such a fun team to watch in 2020 on a weekly basis. There's no doubt about it. Momo, this has been great. Really, really appreciate the time, and uh, best of luck this season, man. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I really appreciate you. Excellent. Be well. Will, this past weekend, I'll be honest with you, I did not watch a second of live spring game action. I mean, I, I still, I don't get me wrong, I, I was able to catch up. I watched all the games, read all the stuff. Shout out to Matthew Loves Ball on YouTube. All the spring games are up on YouTube and you can watch them in this condensed, trimmed down version that's like 16 to 18 minutes, which is basically all I've been doing for the last two days is going back and watching this. And I probably consumed more of spring games than I normally would have, despite the fact that I didn't got to get to watch any of it on Saturday. Why didn't I watch all the games? I was at my brother's bachelor party in Indianapolis this past weekend. I have one brother. You've had him on the podcast before. Um, so that's why today's podcast figuring out segment is bachelor slash bachelorette parties so very topical something that i just experienced um like i said my, my brother ryan who you know we had on for our pre-national championship pod i think it was yeah to talk about ohio state he's getting married next month in lexington actually we had 13 guys in indy for this and people were coming from all over colorado nebraska wisconsin illinois florida kentucky indiana so seven states i think so this is like the Big Ten media days for parties. <laughs> uh, Colorado, Colorado, Florida, Kentucky. No, so not, not totally just Big Ten, but yeah, a few. A few. We got a lot of uh, Big Ten West representation in this one. I, I basically did most of the planning for this. And when I say that, I don't mean I just did whatever I wanted and Ryan showed up to a weekend of surprises. It blows me away kind of that there are some people that, that do that. But... Coordinating a weekend for 13 guys in a city that one I don't live in is not an easy thing. And I didn't want Ryan to have to worry about logistics. Ryan is great at a ton of things, like a lot of things that he thinks at on, on a kind of a different level. And I have a lot of moments where I'm like, oh, you're probably way more of an adult than I am. But out of town, long-term planning, that is not his thing. So yeah, I was itinerary guy, which everybody knows that who's been to a bachelor, bachelorette party. I was itinerary guy, but you need that. Guys need to know what to wear, what to expect. I put together every activity, reservation, email, all of that stuff. And I listened to what my brother wanted to do. He wanted to golf a ton, which by the way, we did. We golfed 36 holes, golfed 27 holes on, on Saturday. So it was a good time. Um, and he wanted everybody to be in the same place. He wanted to have a place where we could play some drinking games. So no hotel rooms, anything like that. I got us two Airbnbs on the same lot, basically like a mile south of Lucas Oil Stadium um, in Indy. And they're actually on one of those like fixer upper shows, HGTV, Good Bones, if you've ever seen that, where they basically just fix every single old home in Indianapolis that's like kind of close to downtown, whatever. 
the weekend itself could not have worked out better. Like everything that we did from start to finish just sort of worked. And I even got to spend a couple of days playing with tractors and chainsaws on my in-laws farm, um, which is 15 minutes outside of the city. So it was a good time too. And they, my in-laws went to the grocery store. They delivered like a hundred dollars worth of food, four pounds of bacon to my brother's bachelor party. So the weekend itself, which I did not ask them to do by any means, but they were so, so kind to be willing to, to do that stuff. The weekend itself, just a home run. And despite having a ton of moving pieces with COVID, they had to move their wedding back. It was originally supposed to be Labor Day weekend. Bachelor party was gonna be like last June. So we had to kind of move everything and, and figure all this stuff out. Guys coming in from different places. It went about as good as I could have asked for. And above all else, my brother felt the love and it was it was rewarding. It, it really was to see all this kind of come together, but it was unique because I had never really had to do anything quite like this, at least not with people that I hadn't seen or talked to in like 10 years, because these are all my brother's friends. I, I planned pretty much everything for my own bachelor party, but I made everybody come down to Orlando. It's all my own buddies, so it's a little bit easier. I learned a lot I think this past weekend that I wanted to be able to share when we get into the responses from the Facebook group. But before we do that, Will, you're like at that age where right now is pretty much when all of that stuff starts. You haven't been to a bachelor party though, have you? No. So I was joking about this off air. It seems like all my friends are either just like players or just forever alone guys who just don't get any girls. Yeah, it seems like I'm going to be the first one, uh, which is going to be interesting because I feel like an, an aspect of this that you're underselling for sure is the pandemic, bro. I feel like every single mm -hmm. time that you, like I've tried to do anything with anybody, I've just been like, this isn't worth it. I got to worry about all this other stuff. Like, did you have to like pandemic proof everything too? Yes and no. I had to... I had to make sure that there were things that were open because there was a, there's a lot of places in Indy that um, like there was a like a restaurant that we wanted to go to that um, they were still like not in the process of open for indoor seating and I had to make sure that places you know, the place that we wanted to do carry out from was willing to do that I had to make sure that there was no sort of like stipulations with people at you know the Airbnb or, or anything like that so it wasn't too crazy to be able to figure that stuff out um, but just in terms of making sure also that if we set a date, would guys be comfortable or would guys not want to come? And I think right. there was only one. Yeah, I think there was only one who, and uh, it was a guy, one of my uh, brother's friends who lives in New York. So it's, you know, kind of a little bit more understandable, kind of it's, you know, been treated differently there and some of the restrictions and stuff. But um, only one person who wasn't down to be able to come. And a lot of the stuff that we did, to be 100% honest, you know, going golfing, 36 holes, like that's, that's pandemic proof to be able to go to some of the places that we did um, where we had like a private room. I, oh yeah, that was another thing I made sure that we that we did just to make sure everybody was comfortable was that we had a private room at the place that, the place that we went to in Indy called uh, the Rathskeller. Shout out to the Rathskeller that we went to on Friday night. It was good, really good. They have like German rolling, food, bro. steak, seafood. It was fun, it was a good time, it was a good time. They have like the 32 ounce German beers as well. And those, I think those caught up to guys a little bit. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. It was a really good time. So but pandemic proof didn't have to do that as much. I'll say this real quick. My two best friends, so you've met John, and John is the most, like, I love John, but he is the most straight-laced, like, non-party guy ever. And then my other friend, Brady, who I don't know how you haven't met yet. He's the one who went to UCF. Big party guy. And, like, I can't wait for those two to have to, like, work together. Like, it's going to be like a buddy cop <laughs> movie. Because I know Brady is, like... 
I told the story about him punching a bus. So, <laughs> oh, Bray, that's that guy. Yeah, that's, 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 that's that guy. And so, like, he he's a he's a very like, and he's a, an adult. He's an organized dude now. That was a long time ago. But it's gonna be funny watching him just throw these cockamamie plans at John and John just be. Where are we gonna get a giraffe? This isn't gonna happen. Right, right, exactly. That's that's kind of the unique thing about this is everybody comes together for for the common goal and. You know, at the end of the day, you have to listen to what the groom wants, and mm-hmm. it's his time, and you want to make sure that he's you know comfortable and happy. And I, I, I that's that's one of the things that I made. You know, I, I, I pretty much try and make that a priority if I go to anybody's bachelor party is just try and keep an eye on the groom. Their good time is the most important good time, and that's why I was willing, so willing to be able to you know kind of be the person itinerary guy, as we would say. To make sure everybody's in the right place at the right time. Also, by the way, shout out to shout out to Mark Forster, Will Hagel, Ryan Nellis, Brian Ke- Brian Cleary. They went above and beyond to help me out. Anything from picking up food, cleaning up, making sure everybody was where they needed to be. That's not an always like an easy thing to be able to figure out with thirteen guys. Some of whom, um, some of whom, let's just say you can tell they aren't used to being around other people and having to actually like clean up after themselves. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> We'll leave it. It at makes that. me feel better that your friend group is older than mine, and we're we're still in similar situations. I feel like <laughs> my, I mean, my brother's friend group. You know, half of these guys have have kids, and so they're they're in a different different phase of life. Is even my, my friends. Like I was the first of my friends to to get married, um, and first to kind of have you know the bachelor party experience with our our core group. But it, it just it's one of those things that you learn more and more about. And maybe it just kind of changes at every every phase in life. We have a lot of great responses in the Facebook group, uh, kind of all over the place here. I want to start with Justin Lonizak, who said, worst one ever, got a dancer to come to the house, groom didn't want anything but country. All right, <clears throat> nothing, nothing wrong with wanting to listen to some country music, hanging out with the boys. Told her to try to be sexy to Kenny Chesney. She had the C-section scar on her belly, which was fresh and was still nursing because milk supply was on high. That's one of the things in the planning process where, and this is not my thing and I haven't been to a bachelor party that, where that is a thing, but if that were to be a thing and that's exactly what the groom wanted, I don't know if there's a box you check to say, maybe, maybe no C-section scars with the entertainment. Maybe we, we try and avoid that route, a little background check, a little Facebook search, a little Google search. Something, and not that you're going to get their actual name. Okay, so that's a dumb idea. That's how inexperienced I am when it comes to this. But that does sound like the worst one ever. I I used to think every bachelor party was like that. And when I was planning mine, I had to make it a point to say to my buddies, look, no strippers. It's not what I want. Why don't we kind of be able to hang out with the guys, have some beers. We went to a magic game, went to bars downtown Orlando. Um, We did paintballing. It was a great time. It was awesome. It was so much fun. But I don't... I would feel uncomfortable in that scenario. My brother, same exact thing. If that's your thing, that's 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 cool. I, I'm I guess I've gotten to the point where I'm surprised it's not as universal and as like there's not as much social pressure. I've like I've never been to a bachelor party wherein like the guys were like legitimately planning that as well, and then they had to be turned down by the groom to say we don't want strippers here. But man. That's that's a tough one. That's a tough one to just have to sit there and watch that. 
Whenever there's a all topic right. that I'm just silent on like that, it's because I I trust you to be the respectful <laughs> one. That's all I'm going to say. I will ask you this question. I don't, as we've discussed, I wrote this to country music. Where would you put Kenny Chesney in like a sexiness meter of country music? Like if you had to pick stripper songs for country music, who would you pick? Where you're like, is that bad? I, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> He's not high on that list. Um, no shoes, no shirt, no problems. I mean, that's kind of got some stripping undertones in it. I think uh, she thinks my tractor's sexy. I, I don't know that's so much a stripper song. I'd go 80s metal over that, but um, let's see. Goodness, I throw... Nope, nope, can't do that. Um, nope, Kenny Chesney is not <laughs> high up on that list. I'd say probably even... Man, if, if you're going to go that route... You, you need something that's kind of borderline. Like, you, you need 90s country, I would think. You need something, may, maybe a little Garth. There's probably plenty of Garth songs that are stripper-friendly, dancer-friendly, entertainment-friendly, but Listen, not I know I know the strippers in my bachelor party are all walking out to call in Baton Rouge. Step one, just... Go ahead. This is why I didn't talk. Let the strippers play neck. All right, from Nick. Nick Ruark, he says, I'm currently trying to plan my brother's bachelor party. First time doing this, so I'm all ears for good suggestions. We will either be headed to Nashville or to Florida or Kentucky, a lake in Kentucky. All areas that I'm somewhat familiar with. I've only been to Nashville twice, I think. But, and then actually, I've, I haven't spent as much time in Kentucky, but my brother lives there, ironically enough. Nick also adds, and this is an important part of this because I would have given a much, much different answer had I not known this. He says, I should also mention that it's a little more complicated because I won't be able to plan ahead because my brother is in the Air Force ROTC at UK and has to do his field training this summer once his classes are done, which we, they, will, um, they have yet to tell him when that'll be. His wedding is July 31st, and I will have a very small window to make this trip happen and coordinate with the other guys coming. Not knowing the date sucks because that's what you've got to figure out first. You have to just throw that date out there. You throw that initial email out there and say, hey, we're doing it this day. Does, if, if that doesn't work for you, let us know. If not, we're going to move forward. We're going to plan everything around that. That is the very, very first thing. So, Nick, I'm sorry that you have to deal with that. That's brutal. Thank you for uh, the service of, of your brother. But that is one of those things that makes everything else easier to plan. So I would say if what you can do is narrow down a window and tell the situation to everybody that your brother would want theoretically invited, need to have the guest list as well. I guess that's before even the date. But make sure that you have a window of, hey, we can do it this weekend, this weekend, this weekend. Leave that open. Here's what it's going to entail. Here's what I have in mind. If it's going to be two days, you probably need to let them know. Showing up later on a Friday, leaving on a Sunday, that's kind of the typical norm, especially for the out of town ones these days. But just make sure that they know and say, hey, we're gonna try and shoot for this, but because we have so many moving pieces here with my brother's schedule, I, I'd love it if you guys just gave me as much flexibility as possible. Summer schedules fill up in a hurry too, so try and get out ahead of that. I'd say do that like yesterday. Try and figure that out before you do anything else. If there's any way, and I'm not sure what the communication's like to be able to communicate what exactly he wants, but make that list and look at everything that's realistic and just try and put together a basic rundown of knowing what you're gonna do at a specific time. 
Don't feel the need to fill every hour with act specific activities. I made sure that on Saturday, for example, Saturday was going to be, we're gonna wake up and also don't do anything too early. Don't do anything too early. Bachelor party that I went to for my buddy Bronson, we had a golf tea time, I think at 9.30 in Milwaukee on Sunday morning. 9.30 after a bachelor party weekend is aggressive to say the least. And I know some people are getting out of town so you wanna to be able to play nine holes early. I get it, but when we're out until three or four o'clock in the morning, it's a little bit tougher to justify the 9.30 a.m. tea time. Let's just say the rounds were not great that day, not great. So be willing to understand time. Understand how you would feel if someone lined up activity after activity after activity where you have to be at a million places in a given day. Try and leave a little bit of that breathing room and don't necessarily worry because sometimes you need that to be able to rally for the Saturday night activity. The plan for ours and what I did for, for my brother was, all right, we're gonna golf 10.45 tee times. That way, you know, these are 32, 33 year old guys. They can get up at nine or nine or even 10 o'clock and still be good to go. So we get up and we golf and we golf 18. The first, man, the front nine was rough. Front nine was real <laughs> rough. I had a moment, dude, I hit a moment on nine where I'm like, am I gonna throw up right now? Am I gonna throw up public? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I'm good. But anyway, it was, I mean, it was a great time. Nothing was anything like egregious, but you know, it takes a little bit to recover. But we hit the end of 18 and my brother says to me, can we play nine more? because the weather is beautiful right now. And if we, cause we didn't have anywhere that we needed to be until 9 p.m. that night. We had a reservation at this place um, wherein you throw footballs at bowling pins. It's called the Foling Warehouse. Really unique, really fun, kind of a socially distanced thing as well. Massive warehouse, weird idea, but whatever, it worked out. I had a built-in like four and a half, five hour window where I knew guys were either gonna wanna recover they're gonna be able to drink some beers. I was gonna go get takeout during in between. Kind of a little bit of that flex time, a little bit of a you know, rally because we're, you know, we're drinking some beers on the course. You, you were gonna need that time. So make sure you have that built-in window because it was nice to be able to say to Ryan, yeah, we have time. We could play, we could play nine more holes. That's only gonna take a couple hours. Let's do it. We would still have more than enough time to be able to get back, eat some dinner and make our nine o'clock reservation at this thing. So Nick, my suggestion, make sure you have those windows. Don't feel like you have to plan every single minute, every single hour loaded with activities. These are human beings who are probably gonna need a little bit of recovery time to be able to be full go for the things that you wanna be full go for. So just do that, listen to what your brother wants to do, and just try and build the, the best possible weekend. Don't necessarily worry about how everybody feels about one specific restaurant. Use your best judgment, trust your gut, listen to your brother. I'd say this advice? too, like, make sure <clears throat> you gotta, basically you can't go wrong with establishing your base camp, right? So if you don't really have any timeline or whatever, the less time I have, the more of my budget I'm gonna put into my Airbnb or, or wherever we're staying. Because I know, worst case scenario, me and my boys can have fun with, you know. Exactly. Like like if we have, we bring some Xboxes out there, we bring some drinking games, we bring like, in my mind, every kind of week that goes by, I'm adding another thing we can do without going anywhere. Because in that way, like you said, if you're filling like four spots, it's just like, all right, all they gotta do is make a, make a reservation a couple weeks at a time at a restaurant. That's a little bit easier than I gotta plan the whole thing. So I'd say, your base camp is your friend. I would say start there, get everyone fired up about where you're going, and then just mm -hmm. kind of fill in the holes there. Fill in the holes and just be able to, I think it helps if you can actually map out what you what you think the day will look like, mm -hmm. you know? And play. Be willing, to, be willing to be somewhat flexible, kind of play some things by ear to a certain extent. You know, after Friday, after we had that dinner Friday at this place, 
my brother says, he kind of leans over to me at the end of the dinner and he's like, but if we just go back to the house and just, you know, just play drinking games and stuff like that instead of going out to the bars? Absolutely, 100%. And, that, you know, during COVID times, it's, it's also way easier to justify that as well when we just want to all hang out together and be able to have a good time. So be willing to be flexible in, in those moments if you are going to be itinerary guy, which it sounds like you're going to have to be. So be flexible, be understanding, and just do something that you would want to do as well, but just don't make it exclusively to you. Listen and understand and just, you know, be organized and be willing to do those things to make sure that, you know, your brother has a good time. All right, we've got other good responses here. Let's go to one from Emery. Emery says, this is Emery Picker, by the way. He's um, got to be like a first-round draft pick, bachelor party guy. Oh, big time. And, oh, I was confirmed. Emery uh, texted me after after the pod last week and said that he had actually gotten five tattoos during uh, since, since we had breakfast, which was basically like right before uh, the pandemic last year. So if you were wondering about Emery's tattoo situation, uh, there you go. That's the update. Emery says, if someone is a lightweight, don't let them drink until later in the night. My brother-in-law was literally asleep on a bar in Athens at 9.30 at his own bachelor party. I am sure he is not the first. I am sure he is not the last, Emery, to have fallen asleep at a bar in Athens before the hour of 10 o'clock. That's a good point, too, because stamina for a bachelor party is key, and everybody is going to want to, and they can to a certain extent. Everybody's gonna want to get after Friday night. Know that. Know that there there is a, a pace to these things, but if you get to that point, so for example, we had, um, we I told everybody who was coming in from out of town, if you were getting there before we could check in at the Airbnb at four o'clock, which I realize is kind of later if you were taking like a half day, if you just want to be able to come and have a place where you can go and you're not just kind of stranded with your luggage or whatever, we're going to be at um, at a brewery uh, a mile away from the Airbnb. It's got outdoor seating. Come have a beer with us. Hang out. We'll just be there and we can catch up beforehand. If you were to show up to the, if you were to show up to that thing and have ten beers before anything starts, you're going to be in some trouble. You're you're going to be in some trouble. And for a lightweight like myself, wherein you know two beer Connor, I don't get after it in the same way that I used to. I can say that. That would not have been the best idea. Pace yourself. And Emery's Emery's right in that there always seems to be that one person who just does a it goes a little bit above and beyond. There's you know there's a couple of guys who after Friday night at my brother's, they, they were hurting all day on Saturday and it took it took a bit to be able to kind of get get the juices back and get get back to normal. But, you know, myself included, admittedly, uh, you know, for the first part, but trust trust the the endurance factor and listen to that. Don't feel like you just need to be, you know, ripping shots from the second that you show up. Good advice, Emery. Yeah, the thing is too, it's like in those situations, you're all part of a team. You're not competing with each other. And there's always like yes. the one guy who wants to push the envelope. And it's like, bro, you know me, I'm a big old boy. And I'm usually on the good end of those situations. So watching like small people try to out drink me, I'm just like, buddy, what are you doing here? Come on, like, let's all just have a good time. I'm Cajun, I'm huge. You're not going to put me under the table. <laughs> like, We had a debate going on with uh, two of my brother's buddies on Friday night. So this is like mid everybody's really kind of getting into it with with our with our golf schedule for Saturday 
there was a debate and these two guys hadn't met before. And that's that's another kind of fun thing about bachelor parties is when, especially when it's your own, is you get to see these worlds colliding yep. and friends that you have from different places. I love that. Like I have two buddies from from um, the baseball hall of fame that I worked with that got to meet my buddies from home and like they got along. And that, that, that in itself was like one of the cool things. You're like, oh, this is, you know, everybody's kind of gelling and getting along. But these two guys were from different friend groups that my brother has. And basically one who is a 225 pound vegan power lifter, which yeah, that's a thing. Um, he was like challenging the other, this guy who um, played college baseball with my brother. And um, basically the debate was who could drink more beers in the golf course. The vegan power lifter said that he could have 18 beers on the front nine. Wow. Aggressive, aggressive. Um, and basically there was this back and forth for about a half hour and it ended with let's not do this because it would probably ruin the weekend and it would ruin our Saturday night. Wise choice to not agree to that in the midst of when you're feeling your strongest and best self, it can kind of take away from, from the groom itself. So make sure that you kind of keep, you're aware of that. And I was, I, I don't remember who it was that kind of stepped in and said, maybe we don't do this and we figure something else out, but um, make sure that you're always aware of those, those elements as well. This one, um, bachelorette party, Jesse Folly. She says, college summer league baseball game for my best friend's bachelorette. We had 30 bucks, all you can eat and drink, including beer. And the game the night before got rained out, so we got two games worth of food and beer. That is a win. <laughs> Most wow. Wisconsin bachelorette party ever. Go lacrosse loggers. That's a good old time right there. I. The all you can drink and all you can eat thing, when it hits, and in those situations like that where you're at a sporting event, buddy, I'll tell you, that's a good time. And I know people are gonna listen to that and say, college summer league baseball game, which I've been to my fair share of having watched so many of my brother's college summer league games. I mean, they're a good time, to, and also depending on where you go, but that's just one of those things where I guarantee you they said, okay, What's a place where we could all drink, have a good time, and just be together and enjoy each other's company? And they decided on that. And it doesn't always have to be, we're going to the strip club, we're, we're getting a stripper to come over to our house, or something like that. I applaud the person who said, you know what? We just all wanna be together, we all wanna hang out, and they lucked out. That, that's a, that is a blessing to have the double all you can eat, all you can, I don't even know how you can double, all you can drink, all you can eat. But they did it. Jesse, that sounds great. That is like every, you know, you hear the stereotypical bachelorette party, like the ones that came out around the NFL draft when it was in Nashville. It's like, oh my God, we're all going to go to Nashville and we're going to take a picture in front of the wings. And she was like, no, let me do the opposite of that. All you can eat, all you can drink, doubleheader baseball game. Like that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. It's like, I, I'm jealous I didn't get to attend that. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That'd be great. That would be, what a, what a great way to be able to spend an afternoon, a night, whatever you want to do, where the company is the most important thing. This one from uh, Chris Milan, he says, make sure steak is involved, JK, but only somewhat. For mine, we had dinner at St. Elmo's Steakhouse in Indianapolis. And Two it was Indianapolis amazing. bachelor parties. There we go. I, I mean, I've, I've always banged the drum Indy is an underrated U.S. city. Anybody who got to go to the NCAA tournament, I was telling a bunch of Arkansas people, enjoy your time. St. Elmo's is like the stereotypical place to go. If you've ever seen the episode of Parks and Rec, of course, 
wherein they they, <laughs> they celebrate the bachelor parties. They run into Luke Gingrich there as well. It's a good time. I've never personally been to St. Elmo's. I think I've had like a, I think I had the shrimp cocktail from St. Elmo's. I feel like I did at some point back in college, but I've actually never been inside St. Elmo's despite the fact that I interned in Indianapolis for a summer and I went to college, you know, 50 minutes away from there. Just that is happened. the most shocking Connor fact of all time that you've never been to St. Elmo's. I've been to, I've been to a decent amount of other places, um, downtown Indy, but not, not there, not there. Just hasn't always quite lined up. I don't know. It's also a tough place to get into as well. Like you, it's kind of, and for the point in life in which I was closest to Indy, which was college, it's not like, oh, I can go to the parents and be like, hey, let's go 50 <laughs> minutes there to, to St. Elmo's. Not exactly Networking. It's a business expense. Mom, I need $200 to spend on myself at St. Elmo's. Exactly. When I was an intern for a AAA baseball team, it wasn't like my boss said, you know what we need to do today to be able to discuss strategy is let's go to St. Elmo's in downtown <laughs> Indy. No. Didn't quite get that, um, that stamp of approval. This last one. I ended on this one for a reason because it is wild. Andrew Diaz. I was supposed to go to Columbia for my original bachelor party. That in itself is just nuts. I have family in Cartagena, I think. Don't know if oh, I so pronounced that right. Oh, you mean like right. Colombia, not like Colombia. Colombia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have said it that way. I should have said it that way. My bad. Let me start over because some people probably listened to that and thought, <laughs> Columbia, South Carolina, hottest place on earth. Columbia, Missouri. I don't know. Okay, interesting place. I was supposed to go to Colombia for my original bachelor party. I have family in Cartagena, and at the time, I lived in Central Florida. Oh, like me. And it was only 300 bucks round trip from Fort Lauderdale. Built-in lodging, built-in tour guides, exchange rate favorable. What could go wrong? I tell you what would. Man, I have never seen so many grown-ass men scared of being kidnapped. <laughs> so we canceled. We ended up breaking up. Hold on, I gotta start over for this part. We ended up breaking off our engagement anyways, but I still look back and think, and it's a gif of, buddy, you're softer than a Tootsie Roll fruit cup. If one of your buddies says, we're going to Colombia, not Colombia, Colombia, it's got to be a real good friend, man. It's got to be a <laughs> real good friend because that is not an easy thing to do. I had an invite and I, and I regret this now, but I think the timing of it was really tough. I think it was like during the season. Oh no, it was actually just after we had gotten back from our honeymoon. Um, one of my buddies had his buddy or had his bachelor party in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which I've since been to in San Juan, Puerto Rico, if you have not been, is fantastic. Do the food tour there. Oh, just some of the best food I've ever eaten in my entire life. But I couldn't go on that one and I kind of like, I had that, oh, could I have found a way to make it work? Probably not after a two week honeymoon in Europe. But don't be initially scared off by the international bachelor party. Colombia is probably a different degree of intense for a bachelor party. You're you're really putting it out there. I understand it's your weekend. Like you want to, you know, you want to make it a good time, but be be open if somebody says, "Hey, we want to go to do something in Toronto or something like that." We want to go I've always heard good things about Montreal. Um, shout out to anybody who's had a bachelor party, bachelorette party in Montreal. Maybe that's an underrated destination that we should all be hitting up, but I would like to be able to attend an international bachelor party. Maybe not in a place that is um, 
intimidating for the outside world, but you know, a place where you could kind of explore and, and travel and see some new things with, be open to it, be open to it. Will, if I said to you today, just pretend that this is a world in which I'm not married. Will, it's my bachelor party. We're going out, we're going to Dublin. We're gonna, we're gonna tie one on pretty good. <laughs> Dublin's an eight hour flight from Orlando, so it's actually not that bad. Really? If Yeah, surprisingly. Now you gotta take the red eye, so it's kind of like, you know, you, they're, they're, they're a few hours ahead, but it's really, it's really not that bad. If I said to you, we're going, or if let's just say one of your, let's say John says to you, Will, <laughs> we're going to Dublin. What do you, what's, what's your initial reaction to that? Do, is your initial reaction, I hope he reschedules and we go somewhere else? Or is it, sign me up, let's do this thing? Well, now hold on. Dublin's way different from Columbia. Um, from a, from yes, agreed. I, so 100% in, in Dublin, I'll say this about Columbia real quick. Um, you really got to look at the strengths and weaknesses of your friend group with that situation. Because one of mm. my friends um, that's from Puerto Rico, and he took me to San Juan, and bro, oh, it. it was like, get him to the Greek. Because he knew everybody there. He got us to go. <laughs> we were partying with the Puerto Rican volleyball team. It was one of the most insane nights of my life. And so that's the thing. You have to know someone who can get you in places and that you trust to be a translator, which is two totally different skills. Because if your buddy, like one of my buddies is also fluent in Spanish. Like he, he like took it like in college. I wouldn't trust him in that situation because he just gets us into mm. trouble. You got to have someone who's kind of like street smart that can get you in and out of places. And if you look at your friend group and say, we don't have those tools, that is the smartest thing. More, props to you, man. Dublin's a place where they speak English and you right. could go in the heart of Dublin. Like you go into a pub in Dublin and they're playing Taylor Swift. This is like your heaven, bro. Right? Seriously, not a bad place to spend a few days. Get it, get the shepherd's pie everywhere you go. If you if you go to a place like that where they speak English, it's not quite as intimidating. But you're right, and that's and that's something that I never even I never even had to like cross that that bridge of What's going to happen when we get there? Who's going to be able to navigate and do all those things and figure out those logistics? If I had to figure out those those logistics in in a foreign place like I did this past this past weekend, where in, you know, obviously in Indianapolis it's pretty straightforward. Everybody, you know, you call and you make a reservation somewhere, and you end up getting into a ten minute conversation with the person on the phone. It's a little <laughs> bit different than trying to plan that stuff, uh, you know, internationally speaking. But I, I hope to attend the international bachelor party one day. One day we'll get there. This was great. This was great. Loaded pod today. Sorry, this is this ran a little bit long, but we're actually pro- we're, we should have you should have an extra day to be able to listen to this before our pod next week comes out. So um, we will be doing pods that come out Thursday morning moving forward. Last two weeks we've been Wednesday morning. I'm gonna have so much spring wrap up stuff next week, and we're also yeah. gonna be talking. I think we're going to be talking some draft stuff as well. We're going to we're going to hit on pretty much everything. So it's going to be loaded pods, unloaded pods for the foreseeable future. Not sh- quite sure on guests just yet, but that's a, that's in the works. Um, but hopefully everybody enjoyed our guests today, Wandale Robinson and Momo Sonogo. Hopefully you learned a little bit about them. Uh, if you have not, go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Always talk it up. Can't recommend it enough. If you are not subscribed to all things SDS on social media, make sure that you do that as well. If you have not joined the Facebook group, we'd love to be able to, to, to connect with you there. Hear your name on Figuring It Out, Saturday on South Podcast on Facebook. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.